To many people, finance is nothing more than some combination of spreadsheets, financial markets, equations, and well, if you've lost interest by this point, please hang in there, because our next guest has forged a career by firstly mastering the aforementioned concepts, and then adding her own strategic foresight, creativity, and willingness to build meaningful relationships with those around her. Annie Suchcroft is Head of Infrastructure Investment in the Real Assets Division of Macquarie Asset Management in Australia, and she's influencing businesses, but most importantly, whole communities on a grand scale. From her time spent as an intern at Macquarie, and then a decade spent working and studying abroad, including completing her MBA at Harvard, it was the entrepreneurial culture of Macquarie that drew her back to the firm in 2016. Since her return to Macquarie, Annie has embraced her passion for making a positive impact on not just businesses, but whole societies through her efforts in developing Macquarie's digital infrastructure investments team, with investments such as Airtrunk and Vocus Group, among others. She has been so successful in doing so that the Australian Financial Review listed her as one of Australia's top 25 private capital deal makers in 2022, with seasoned deal makers claiming she's arguably the most impressive investor in Australia's infrastructure, and she is just getting started. Hello and welcome back to The Business Of. I'm Will. And I'm Charlie. In today's episode, we unpack with Annie the enjoyment she gets from her involvement in investments that positively impact whole communities, how she has benefited from applying an entrepreneurial mindset in an organisation blessed with a depth of expertise and resources. And we hear about why Annie still loves a face-to-face discussion. We hope you enjoy. How are you, Annie? Oh, well, thanks. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, all good. Very keen for this one. So, Annie, we might start out with a bit of your background. So, we know that your success in deal-making in private capital has not come overnight. You spent time at both UBS and Goldman in your early professional years. Can you speak to some of the key learnings from this foundational period in your career? Sure. So I think that um, the first thing I'd say is when you come out of university, it's really easy to be, or I was anyway, a little bit daunted by just this ladder that stands yeah, before yeah. You, 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 that you're at the bottom of it and you feel like it's actually quite a long way to to go to get anywhere where you feel like you've got you know a meaningful role in things. Mm-hmm. So my first piece of advice would be actually with the benefit of hindsight and perspective everyone in a team is important so you really actually need to be going into those jobs even when you're the most junior person on a team trying to work out what your value add is Mm. and knowing that everybody values it as well your contribution so that's the first thing i'd say the second thing i'd say is don't be impatient about where you're trying to get to. Actually, as you're learning and as you're doing transactions, as you're managing assets, that experience of just learning is very important. And it's important that you don't rush it by just thinking about what's the next thing, that you actually have a chance to experience it and learn from it while you're doing it. So I think that's Mm. very important. Mm. And then the last thing I'd say is, it is really a self-fulfilling thing. So the better you are at the first thing you get asked to do, even if it seems very little, the more likely you are to get asked to do the next thing. Like people mm. are human at the end of the day and managers when they're allocating work do tend to gravitate towards people that they know are gonna deliver. Yeah. So actually just even in on very little tasks that you think might be insignificant, proving yourself has a big impact on then your ability to get the next thing. Mm. No, it's yeah. very interesting. And you spoke about learning. I could you give a quick background on your on your background in the education 
sort of at uni? Yeah. Sure. So I did uh, commerce law at the yeah. Uni University of Sydney. Um, yeah. Worked for a couple of years and then went and did my MBA at Harvard Business School. Oh, oh yeah, cool. Well, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. would have been yeah. It's I do know education. that one. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. And you speak. Um, you're you're often noted for speaking to the creativity side of finance um, as being one of the things that you love about the industry. And I suppose drew you towards it. Um, I guess there are a lot of people who probably don't look at finance in that way. Um, how do you come to realise this this aspect of you know numbers in spreadsheets? I guess. Mm. So it goes back to a little bit of what you were asking about earlier on. I think that that foundational element of finance. So you do need to do enough years that you get the basics right. That you know how to do you know spreadsheets and models yeah. and yeah. transaction documents. But I think once you have those basics down. Mm actually it's up to you where you want to take it and one of the things that i've really liked about finance is looking at communities looking at societies and thinking where is there a gap and one yeah. of the things that we do is try and join capital with the people that need it yeah. and one of the areas that I've been quite heavily involved in in the last few years is investing in digital infrastructure. Mm. And for me, it was actually one of those moments where you think actually society's changing, communities are changing, the way we interact with technology is changing. Yeah. And so what does that mean we need? And digital infrastructure, so fiber, telco towers, data centers, they seemed like things that we needed. And having the ability with a set of skills to then go out and try and join that capital to that need, <laughs> I thought was, and it was an awesome opportunity and yeah. actually something that is quite creative in the sense that it hasn't been done before. So you're building your own playbook. Yeah, it's yeah. quite entrepreneurial in the sense that like, you, yeah, it's like like a business owner, they try to identify a gap in the market and when they can fill that gap. And I guess it's cool to know that you can still do that from a um, professional services and um, point of view, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. exactly right. And I yeah. think that the benefit of doing it from a professional services background, and, and particularly with the backing of some really strong institutions, is that you can do it at scale. Yeah. So yeah. I think everyone thinks of entrepreneurship as being, you know, small startups. Yeah. Actually, yeah. yeah. But some of the companies that we've invested in are now actually at scale and classified as digital infrastructure companies, yeah. but started as startups. So yeah, you yeah. do have the ability to impact communities on, on a material level. Yeah, yeah for sure, cool. yeah. yeah. Um, we might talk a bit about Macquarie Asset Management now. So can you explain to our listeners what exactly is asset management? So when we make an investment, um, there's a couple of people involved. So you'll yeah. have investment banks, for instance, which will advise on the transaction. And then once the transaction closes, their role comes to an end. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you'll have lawyers in a similar sort of uh, framework. For asset management, we drive the investment decision. So we collate um, advice from a number of parties. We do due diligence. We yeah. meet management teams. We come up with a business plan. And so we are very heavily involved at that point of investment. Mm. But the main differentiating factor is actually we're involved then through the life cycle of an asset. So that investment is made, but then we continue to manage the asset. So people will go on the board of that asset, will help mm. set up their systems. So for instance, you know, we're very big on upgrading things like corporate governance, ESG, health and yeah. safety. Yeah. So we're involved in that whole asset life cycle, asset maturity mm. until the point of exit, at which yeah. point we will then oversee the exit of that investment. So the main point of asset management is you're actually investing in an asset to build it, to grow it, to develop it over yeah. its life cycle rather yeah. than just at the point of transaction. And, th and that's mm. become sort of that, that asset management and then more broadly, I guess, private equity space has become a f far more, uh, I suppose, popular and spoken about in recent times. Um, have you noticed a bit of a change in the perceptions towards pri private investments and over the past um, period or has it always been pretty strong in your eyes? I think that 
um, the important thing is actually, particularly in a market like Australia, mm. you get a reputation for the type of investor that you are, both yeah. on a personal level and also an institutional level. And so it is very important and we are very conscious of making sure that when we undergo diligence transactions, um, talk to management teams, that we are doing so in a way that would make us happy to be dealing with it if we were on the other side of the table. Mm, yeah. And I think that's important, not just because it's important to act correctly and properly anyway, mm. but also because I think then your reputation follows you as you then seek to make more investments. Yeah. And actually a lot of these management teams, a lot of these vendors will reference check you with other people. <laughs> um, and so I think that that question around the perception of asset management actually ends up becoming quite a personal, as in personal to the team, but also personal to the institution question. Yeah, yeah, yeah cool. You spoke about uh, the more hands-on approach uh, a bit before. Um, can you explain maybe through some of the investments that Macquarie Asset Management have made, uh, what that sort of looks like a bit more? Sure, so um, one of the things that we're really focused on is investing in assets that we know that we can grow and which help communities um, yeah. through that growth and through that improvement. And so some of the investments that we've invested in recently, we invested in a hyperscale data center platform a couple of years ago. We made an investment at a point when they were focused on um, markets in Australia. Yeah. Our follow-on capital has helped them to then grow offshore uh, yeah. into Asia Pacific markets. And that's been a very important component of their growth trajectory. Yeah. Um, similarly, there are other assets where we've invested in them at the point of privatisation. So yeah. governments have commercialised yeah. those assets. And we've been really focused on investing to upgrade the technology stack, for instance. Yeah. So to make it easier for consumers to uh, interact with those assets in a way that they would interact with any other digital asset, but also making it safer, more reliable. Yeah. Um, you know, third example, we're invested in a fibre network provider, a specialist yeah. fiber network provider, and we've been um, really focused on providing them with capital to mm. grow throughout Australia, particularly regional Australia. Mm. So yeah, there are examples yeah. where actually, you know, we're investing to try and grow those assets and have a positive impact on communities. Mm. And you sp yeah, you keep, you keep referencing communities and, and the people involved in the transaction. I find that really interesting because that's as probably, particularly in the asset management side of things, when you do have a, an, a relationship that spans more than just that initial transaction and then it's done like a investment banker or um, it, and it's a long-standing thing can you speak to probably the importance of trying to maintain those relationships and really get to understand what makes the other side of the deal tick if that, yeah yeah so the relationships aspect is really key to the whole thing yeah, so yeah. I mean the first thing that I talk about is we're really focused on this concept of social license to operate yeah so we operate critical infrastructure assets in communities where it's essential that those services continue being provided. Yeah, you know? yeah. And if you think about our assets globally, some of those are communications assets, some of those are utilities like power yeah. or water, some of those are transport assets like airports or toll roads. So communities rely on those assets operating reliably, securely, yeah. safely, yeah. and that those communities need to want you have Want, need to want you to be in their communities and continue to operate. So yeah. social license to operate is very important to us that we need to be serving the community for them to want us to stay there. Yeah. Mm. So that's the first thing. The second thing I'd say is there's also then a range of very important relationships with stakeholders. Yeah. So 
um, whether that be regulators or governments, you know, stakeholders external to the company, but also stakeholders internal to the company. So particularly the employees and senior management teams, because a lot of what we do again on asset management is manage the investment. We don't dive into the asset and then try and be the CEOs of these companies or the CFOs mm. of these companies. Mm. So actually making sure that you're adequately interacting with and motivating those C-suite teams is really important it's to really the performance of an asset. It's yeah. mm -hmm. really interesting. Yeah, um, and something that has come up a lot in a lot of our discussions with other guests is like the art of the deal. And like um, if you sort of you know, maximize the, the benefit of like the entry into a, an asset, you know, everything else is, can run a lot smoother. Um, what would you say are the key attributes to being an effective deal maker? Like I think when you talk about those government assets being privatized, I imagine there's probably a few bidders when those assets are becoming privatized. So how does, how does that all work? I think the main thing is to try and understand what all parties want from yeah. a deal. Yeah. Because oftentimes, you know, sometimes it is pricing and pricing is all that matters. Yeah. But I guess in my experience, there have often been other considerations as well. So to use your example, for instance, with government assets, mm. governments, if they are going to commercialize their assets, want to know that the people that are investing in them are going to be a safe pair of hands. Yeah. Yeah. They're going to be able to operate them reliably, yeah. safely, securely. Sure. And so credentials, particularly around operating credentials, where you've operated assets that are similar in the past become very important. Um, mm. Also levels of expertise, so who you're going to put on the board if there isn't a management team in place, who you're gonna put in the management team or how you're gonna supplement the management team. Yeah. So I think understanding what it is that is driving a decision maker yeah. is really important. Yeah. Um, and I'd say that that's almost sort of the key piece of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that came up a bit when we were talking to Nick Jaws when he was talking about um, putting yourself in the shoes of like the, you know, the mining executives at those big companies, you know, when they need to offload assets and stuff. And yeah. when you really understand what they need out of something, that, yeah, you can get the deal across quite easily, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and look, and I think there's also just something to be said for, uh, we try and operate our deal teams in a way that it's a pleasant experience for yeah, people, yeah, right? Yeah, like there's actually fair. just also something to be said for yeah. these transactions. It's this shark tank environment. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <where everyone> <laughs> <laughs> got, got the claws out. Yeah. yeah, no, that's exactly right. Yeah, because yeah. no, I suppose, uh, you're more when you're more comfortable you're probably also more likely to get make good decisions and be willing mm. to you know try and get both for best for both parties yeah. so yeah it makes yeah. sense um, I suppose you personally you've had a massive rise in the pri private capital um, markets and I guess can you speak to us a bit about your your history in it and why why um, why you're doing so well I guess like why do you think <laughs> <laughs> I know that's often a hard thing I know that's often, up a, a bit. Yeah. I know that's often a hard thing to uh, to speak about but yeah I must say when Will and I were reading reading through the AFR article last year that was published that yeah, included yeah. you as one on the top 25 deal makers and very much one of the most prominent ones as a as a female working in private capital markets it's a massive credit to you because it's a traditionally a male dominated industry and you're really really doing a great job in showing why women can definitely have a big impact. So yeah, can you speak to that for a bit? <laughs> sure, <laughs> let me have a go at that. So um, I, I uh, went into in infrastructure investment in the first place because I really liked the idea that, as we were speaking about earlier, notwithstanding that I had done a commerce degree and a law degree, yeah. that I could actually help create something and make something. Yeah. And I actually interned at Macquarie and I loved this whole idea that you could use that skill set to create roads and airports yeah. and utility yeah. companies and have a long lasting positive impact on communities. Mm. So that was why I got into it. And I think that if you have a purpose which drives you, which is actually around 
something positive, and you know, for me it was creating things, then that makes um, makes it very clear why it is you know go to work every day and why it is you work the hours that you do, why it is yeah. that you do the transactions that you do. So I think that sense of just actually purpose and what is your personal purpose is yeah. really important. Um, I think that the other thing I'd say, and you've mentioned it a little bit in terms of the environment, the finance environment, yeah. one of the things that I have really loved in the last few years has been the ability to create teams yeah. um, and create team cultures. And yeah. I think that if you can actually surround yourself with people who are you know, smart and intelligent and driven, but also just really lovely, nice people, that mm. makes your whole experience of coming to work yeah. very different. Yeah. So even if you're dealing with you know, counterparties, for instance, who might be a bit more traditional or of a slightly different demographic, at least if you know your team's got your back, that makes yeah. actually yeah. a huge difference. Um, yeah. But it also just makes the whole experience of coming to work a lot happier. And I think that, again, makes it sort of easier to then be successful and want to succeed because you're in, you're in just a good place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, for mm. sure. That's a very good answer to a long-winded question. Well done. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, um, I guess moving forward, I guess uh, the interest rates and some of the macro factors that are impacting um, the, the probably the public markets very much. Are they do they have similar impacts on the private markets? Can you speak to that for a bit? Yeah, it's a really interesting question, and it's something that we've been speaking about a lot recently. Mm. I mean, just in terms of, I guess what you'd expect to be the generic impacts of yeah. things like rising interest rates obviously means rising cost of debt, rising cost of capital. Yeah. Um, a lot of our businesses are actually inflation linked. So in some ways there's a little bit of a hedge, yeah. but the main focus and what we've been really trying to drum home to our mm. portfolio companies is in an uncertain macroeconomic environment, actually you really need to focus on the things that you can control. Mm. So mm. it's all that micro level stuff, making sure the quality of your revenue is really good, mm. making sure that your OPEX is actually efficient, where yeah. you've got the ability to pull other levers in the company. So for instance, a lot of our companies do have the ability to create new products, for instance, that you yeah. are actually focused on doing that and doing that well. So I think that the main message that we've really been trying to drum home to our management teams is it's easy to get caught up in macroeconomic uncertainty and mm. it's easy to feel like things are out of your control, but actually you really need to be focused on the things that you can control. Mm. Yeah, no, yeah, that makes sense. Another thing that I'm quite interested in is um, like, are you guys always out there hunting for assets or is it, because I guess w when you have yeah. you know, so many assets that you manage, I guess so much of your day would be taken up by like actually managing those assets, right? So at what point do you guys go, okay, now's a good time to go you know, out and have a look for something to, to, to potentially invest in or buy. That's yeah. portfolio, yeah. yeah. So we have, um, I mean, we're in a lucky position in this market in the sense that we have a great team and it's a reasonably large team, comparably, yeah. but it's also a global team. So we are yeah. able to, go, to draw on resources globally. It's not like, for instance, you need to have the expert for every discipline sitting in Sydney. You can actually call someone in New York <laughs> yeah. with a question about digital, or you can call someone in London with a question about ASG. And that's yeah, well. actually fantastic that, you've, that we've got that regional and global mm. breadth. Um, and so because of that, we are actually, um, we do, we are actually able to be looking for assets all the time, but yeah, we are yeah. very disciplined about when we decide to invest in an asset. Yeah. So we would screen, you know, multiples of the assets that yeah. we actually ever end up investing in. And I think you need to do that as a discipline just so that you know what you're not looking for as much as what you are looking for. Mm. So for us, it's very much about the quality of the investment opportunity that we have in front of us rather than trying to hit a number. Yeah, um, yeah. And we're certainly not at a position where we'd say, actually this year, we're just not looking 
looking for investments because I think one of the things we also find is as you get bigger and you have more portfolio companies, yeah. you get into the information flow much more. Mm, yeah. So a lot of investments that aren't necessarily um, public or available to everyone, again, going back to this reputation point, if yeah. people feel like you'd actually be a good place for them mm, or yeah. for their teams or for their assets, they tend to reach out. So we are always screening, but we're very disciplined about what we'd invest in. Mm. Yeah, and that information flow, it must be so, you speak about it, because it's way different to the public markets where it's sort of all out there, mm. or, and but private, it's very much, um, you meet with so-and-so, you hear this, you hear that. Um, can you speak a bit about, I guess, where do you think you probably, or oh, I'm trying to think of the way to phrase it, but generate um, some really positive discussions around your opportunities? Yeah. It is definitely meeting people. So yeah. this yeah. is the thing, right? Like I feel like sometimes, particularly when you first start, you think the most important place for me to be is front of my is in front of my spreadsheet. Uh, yeah. And, yeah, I, yeah. and I think there are there is an element to you know there are components in teams. So some people will have periods of their lives when that is the case. But mm. actually, it's very rare that you would generate an idea just from sitting in front of your computer. Yeah, one of the things, yeah, one of yeah. the things that I like best about this job is actually just the amount of people that you get to meet. <laughs> yeah. and, and as I was saying before, I think it's also that thing about reputations and people wanting to deal with you. So the more that you are actually doing things well and doing right by people, the more people you know, the more investments you have, so the more people that you're doing that by, the more positive impact you For have, sure. the more mm. likely it is that people are willing to take your call, reach out, you know, have have that coffee. And so that's actually where I find it ends up being the most um, the most beneficial, I guess, yeah. place to find new ideas and new investments because mm. at the end of the day, it is those people that are um, building those assets that are making those decisions. Mm. That's really interesting because there's been this, I suppose I find it in the place that I work at the moment, sometimes people go, oh no, I prefer to do a team's call. And then for some, sometimes it is still just that value of meeting yes. face to face because yeah. probably, I, I don't know, I nef definitely find I feel more comfortable to um, ex you know, share information with someone when I am in that um, uh, physical setting. Yeah, yeah. You, has that changed at all, I suppose? Have you found that there's less of that since COVID or has it still very much been um, a, a big focus of yours to try and be out there. So my personal experience has been that actually um, people have started come back, coming back to yeah. in-person meetings. So there was definitely a period there where it was hard to do, particularly if you were doing cross-border transactions. Yeah. Yeah. And we did unfortunately have a few of our investments which we had to close or finish off just um, over, yeah, virtually oh, oh. just because of the nature of um, COVID and not yeah. being able to be in the same place. But we've definitely found that people have started coming back in for those in-person meetings. And as you say, I think it's hard to replace that interpersonal interaction with yeah. everything being virtual. So yeah, I, I completely agree with you. It is actually a lot easier to do face-to-face. -face. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, good um, to know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you spoke about... Um, good excuse for us to come to Sydney. <laughs> yeah, exactly, face-to-face. Yeah, -face. Um, you spoke about like the team around you at Macquarie. Um, so organisations such as Macquarie are fascinating because they seem to have the ability to foster de the development of talented professionals who offer creative thought patterns year in, year out. Um, would you say that this ability to be creative and entrepreneurial is something like Macquarie has sought to encourage everywhere possible? And like, is that the reason why you think your teams like yours are so, or able to be so successful? 
So one, of, one of the things that I've really liked about being at Macquarie, and you've uh, you've already mentioned it, is yeah. it is a very entrepreneurial, organic yeah, yeah. culture. So I think people are encouraged and empowered to think for themselves. Yeah, um, yeah. So to think about how they can contribute to the business, how they can contribute to communities, what do business cases and ideas look like. Yeah. Uh, and then obviously there's a very rigorous process around making sure that risk is appropriately mitigated, yeah, that yeah. it's priced, that um, all the you know transaction documents are being done properly, but it is as you say, it is a, it's an it's an entrepreneurial place. Yeah, and so yeah. yeah, I think that does um, that does bring out the best in people that want to be creative. Yeah, yeah, and it's really interesting, and it comes back to your point about how you can be entrepreneurial within large organisations. Because mm. I probably prior to this chat had a little bit of a preconception that that sort of the bigger it is, the harder it is to sometimes think for yourself, but after speaking to you today, I very much have an understanding that sometimes the scale can also help you, you know, have a greater impact with that entrepreneurial idea you have because of the resource availability. And yeah, yeah. it's really interesting. And it's also the expertise. Like I love yeah. working in a place where You've actually... Got, yeah, some people you can just call up. Yeah, exactly. yeah. yeah. Oh, that's very interesting. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. All right. Well, I guess probably one of the last questions we'll finish with today, Annie, is if you could think back to law commerce student um, Annie Satchcroft, what advice would you give to her back, uh, back then? So I think the main piece of advice that I would give my 20 year old self is um, not to sweat the course corrections. So yeah. what I mean by that is, you know, I actually started my career as a lawyer before then going back to, oh, really? yeah. yeah. So I interned in finance, um, I did two years as a lawyer, I went to business school and then I went to principal investing. And I think if I look at that pattern, there were probably years in there early on where I just thought, oh, it would have been faster if I had just done a commerce degree, come out of university, <laughs> stayed in one place and gone all the way through. Yeah. But actually what you realize, with again, with the benefit of hind hindsight and a bit of perspective is all those experiences actually layer on to help you create a broader skill set. And yeah. so now I don't regret any of it. Now I actually think they were great life experiences <laughs> and I'm glad I had a chance to do it. You know, I spent a stint working in Dubai, a stint working in Paris, oh, wow. like that international perspective is great. But there are points in your career early on where I think it feels like a race and yeah, I definitely yeah. would have felt like I was behind at times. Mm. Now you sort of think, actually, you know what, you kind of need to enjoy the journey. So yeah. that would be my one piece of advice. Yeah. Well, that's good to know because I'm doing law economics as well and I don't really like the law at the moment, but <laughs> I sort of feel like, oh, why don't I just do like an economics degree? We're, or literally, having, we're literally having that chat yeah. probably two yeah. weeks ago. Right. Yeah, anyway, that's yeah. good to know. Yeah, and yeah, it is true. All the experiences you get, it just it just builds on, layers on, hey. So yeah, yeah. no, yeah, it's good advice. Thanks for that. Yeah. I'll be able to snip this bit of the podcast <laughs> and, and replay it to you every, next, time you have, next time you have a- Have a uh, look about it. Have, yeah. a, have a look about it. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, thank you very much for your time today, Annie. It's been great. And we really appreciate the team at Macquarie for having us. So, oh, yeah, thank you very much. Thank yeah. you so much. Thank you for listening to the business of. If you enjoyed the show, please consider rating and following us on your chosen podcast platform, LinkedIn and Instagram, as it helps others find us. 